Today I'm continuing the series of sermons entitled Love One Another about how we're instructed in Scripture to treat other people and especially how we are to treat others who are brothers and sisters in Christ. Scripture is very clear that we are called to live by a different set of rules than the rest of the world. We cannot live as the world is, especially in a relationship to other Christians. Two weeks ago, before we were fortunate to have Wayne Cook preach for us last week, I presented a sermon entitled, Be Generous to One Another. The focus of that sermon was that we're called to be generous with our resources, our money, our time, our talents. Now, I preached that sermon first because whenever we say, be generous, people immediately assume you mean to be generous with your resources, and particularly with your money. That's the way our society thinks. And I wish I'd had the the information last week or two weeks ago to make the point of this, but our treasurer told us at the session meeting yesterday that consistently 72% of all the contributions that come into Lakeside Presbyterian Church come from only eight families, either individuals or couples. If you're one of those eight, God bless you. If you're not one of those eight, just imagine what an opportunity you have to continue to give to the things of God. Yes, we as a society tend to think when you say be generous, we have to be talking about money, but there's more to it than that. Today I want to take a step back and look again at the command that we be generous. And I do this because while we tend to think of money as the focus of generosity, there is a kind of generosity that precedes being generous with our material possessions. And that is generosity of spirit. Today we will look at the second part of this in a title that I've a sermon I've entitled very creatively I think be generous to one another too <laughs> I say this uh, I'll say right up front that this topic relates to all the other topics I've preached in this series like forgiving and being kind and honoring one another because all of these virtues are interrelated to begin I want us to look at the words of Jesus as recorded in the gospel account of Luke in the sixth chapter beginning with the 27th verse Hear now this, which is the word of the Lord. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. May God add his blessing to this reading of his word. 
Wow. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Turn the other cheek. If someone takes your coat, give him your shirt too. Give to everyone who asks. And if anything gets taken from you, don't expect it back. In fact, lend without expecting expecting to get repaid. Be kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Don't judge. Don't condemn. Forgive and give. Wow. It's obvious why these words are always included in the various lists of the hard sayings of Jesus. Perhaps it would be better to call them the impossible sayings of Jesus. Who would do these things? Who could do these things? Well, Jesus could. In fact, Jesus did. Jesus loved his enemies. He blessed those who cursed him. He did not fight back. He gave everything he had to people who hated him and did not deserve him. He forgave everyone for everything they did. On the cross, Jesus looked down at those who had tortured him and then were slowly killing him. And he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Yes, Jesus could and did do all these impossible things. Jesus was radical, as Wayne talked about last week. And I believe the reason Jesus was able to do all these things is not just because he was the Son of God, but because as the Son of God, Jesus knew his purpose in the world. In John 3.17, which we read as part of our gospel reading today, it says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus knew why he was here. It was not to condemn people for their evil ways, although their ways were very evil. It was not to get credit for being divine, even though he was the one and only Son of God. Or to have people fawn over him and worship him, though he deserved that worship. He did not come to prove how much more powerful or better he was than the people around him, though he was more powerful and he was better. He didn't accrue money or possessions or power, at least not beyond the power that was required for him to show people that he could miraculously meet their needs when he healed disease, raised the dead, fed the hungry with almost nothing, walked on water, drove out demons. Jesus showed what he could do what he did do in healing, feeding, raising the dead, driving demons. What he did was to wash the feet of his followers, taking the role of the humblest of all servants, rather than expecting, as he had every right to expect, that they should serve him and wash his feet. And Jesus willingly allowed himself to be betrayed and tortured and killed on a cross for the sake of every one of us for everyone who has ever lived who will receive him, even though we don't deserve it. The Son of God came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save it, because Jesus knew exactly why he was here. Because he knew his purpose, he could go about that purpose, the purpose he was called to, rather than being caught up in all the usual human pursuits. 
Because Jesus knew why he was here, he could be loving and giving and forgiving. Because Jesus knew why he had come into the world, he did not need to fight and struggle to get his own way. He therefore could be generous, seemingly impossible in his generosity. Now the book of James gives us a counterbalance to how Jesus lived when when James describes in the fourth chapter what we are like. James writes this starting in the first verse of the fourth chapter. What causes fights and quarrels among us? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasure. You see, James describes here, and he's talking about Christians, how we Christians, all of us, are terribly tempted to do things the way the world does them, to follow the same set of standards, to have the same expectations as the world. We try to live by the standards of the world rather than those that are set by God and modeled for us in Jesus. We think as the world thinks that the purpose of life is to get ahead, to win, to beat out the competition, to accumulate power and wealth and possessions. And don't tell me that that's not the case. I've been there. On any given day, I may be there right then. I believe the reason why we as Christians cannot be generous, truly generous in spirit to one another, is that we've gotten our purpose for being here completely wrong. We simply are not clear why we're here. What is our purpose? More specifically, if we are children and servants of God, why did God put us here? Or why did he leave us here after we accepted him? Why are we here? Or, my brothers and sisters, more to the point, you need to ask, why are you here? If you believe, whether you've ever thought about it or not, that you are here in order, along with everyone else, to struggle for money and prestige and power and toys and all the other marks that the world identifies as success, then you really don't have a clue why you're here. And you will never be able to be generous in spirit toward anybody else. Because as long as you think success is measured by the world standards, money, prestige, power, possessions, as long as you think that's the point, you will never understand God's will for you. You will always be dissatisfied and grasping, and you can never be truly generous in spirit toward anyone, other people, or even yourself. And that truth applies to every single one of us. We were made for a purpose. Actually, Jesus tells us we were made for two purposes. And neither of them have anything to do with winning the game of life according to the world's measurements. Jesus said, we are here first to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And second, and he says it's like unto it, it bumps right up against it, we are here to love our neighbors as ourselves. Where in that does it have anything to do with us spending our life gathering possessions and money and power and prestige? Our purpose is right there. Love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. That's why we're here, brothers and sisters. That's why we should be 
doing everything we can with our time, our efforts, and our lives to accomplish these two goals. Because once we get that straight, everything changes. For example, when we get our purpose as followers of Jesus straight, it will completely change the way we look at the church and the reason that this institution or even this building exists. Too many Christians today, I believe, and we have a beautiful building to be in, and some, in some ways this may make this worse, too many Christians today see the church as a kind of resort. It's a place where they can gather with old friends, where they can meet new friends, they can eat and play and relax, and then be a passive observer while other people perform for you for an hour, or on a particularly bad Sunday, even an hour and a half. <laughs> And then, after that's all over and you've lasted through it, you get to go home and resume your usual activities without any being any the worse for wear. Very much like a resort. Now, make no mistake, God desires for us to experience fellowship in the body of believers. You hear me say that every week. That is not wrong, but if we think that's the point then we really do think this is a resort. And brothers and sisters, let me tell you, the church is not a resort. The church is a hospital. The church is a place where first we come to worship God. And I have to say, in my estimation, probably a third of us really understand what it means to worship God. Despite whatever efforts I'm able and others are able to make toward teaching you and leading you in the process of worship. The church is also the place where we come to care for the needs of people who are hungry and poor and sick and broken. Jesus was very clear. He said healthy people don't need a doctor. It's the sick who need a doctor. And this is his hospital. Jesus, when he left, he put us in charge to do his work for those sick people. And that includes those who are poor, hungry, mentally ill, addicted, broken, homeless, whatever the damage that they have experienced and are suffering, we are to help heal them until he comes again. And you know why? Because he healed us in just the same way. We are all broken. We are all lost. We are all hungry. We are all wandering until he claims us and heals us. I told a story in our Sunday School for Adults this morning that I had not really thought about in context of this sermon, but I will, I will share it now. It was one of the really important events in my life. It's it, actually two events that happened in one week. When I was a seminary student in my mid-twenties, right next to Fuller Seminary in, Cal, in Southern California was the, a huge Episcopal church, the biggest Episcopal church that, uh, west of the Mississippi River. And I was working at a soup kitchen they had there. And I would go over twice a week, and I would make soup and sandwiches, and I would feed people, and I would talk to them. One day, I was there, and a young woman about my age, this was many years before I met Carolyn, don't misunderstand this, a young woman came in, clearly she was living in the street. Her hair was a mess, and her clothes were not very clean. She'd been living outside, sleeping in the street. She came in, and we started talking. She had a wonderful smile and a charming laugh. And she was obviously smart. And I found myself being attracted to her. And I thought, what is going on? I mean, she, clearly she's living in the street. 
After a while of us talking, it's as though a cloud crossed in front of her face and her personality completely changed. She accused me of having a policeman behind the counter who was going to arrest her. She thought that perhaps I had poisoned the soup I had just given her to eat. Over the next period of time, as I talked to her and others there, her personality changed a number of times. (coughs) Radically, just all of a sudden, she would be someone else. It was because of drugs. She had taken PCP, it had destroyed her mind, and she was never going to be okay again. Later that same week, I was working with uh, another gentleman who was homeless, and I was taking him, among other things, I was taking him to uh, AA meetings. We went into an AA meeting, and he said, oh, let's go and say hello to my friend Jim. It's his birthday. I think it was 25th birthday or something. And I looked over on the bench at Jim, and Jim looked like the most perfect recruitment poster for the Marine Corps you have ever seen. Strong, muscled, strong neck, beautiful face, like a Roman statue. And I thought to myself, why can't I look like that? Again, I was, as I said this morning, I was only in my mid-twenties. I still had a little room for vanity back then, right? We walked over and started talking to Jim. My friend Walter Lee takes me over and we start talking to Jim. Jim, immediately I become aware of the fact that he has the mind of a five-year-old. Again, his mind had been destroyed by drugs, and he would never be any better. Why am I telling you these stories? Because that week I was confronted with the fact, by being attracted to that woman, and by being attracted to the the look of that young man, and wishing I looked like him, I realized the only difference between them and me is that their brokenness was a little more socially acceptable. I could still function, in my brokenness and in my sin, and they had made one decision that meant they would never be acceptable in society anymore. They would never be able to fit in. Had I made that wrong decision, I would be where they are and they might be where I was. I am no different, no better. I am as much a sinner redeemed by God and healed by Him as the very worst of the people out there, as the very worst of you or anybody else. We are all healed by Jesus. And as we become part of his body, we then have the responsibility and gratitude in recognizing our own brokenness to try to heal other people and not just come and enjoy the show every Sunday when Ross gets up here and talks for 30 or 40 minutes. We should not only be welcoming and caring about other people who are broken, like we are, even if our brokenness is a little easier for people to deal with, we should be not only welcoming and caring for broken people, but we should be actively seeking them out. Because Jesus said they were a primary concern of his. And we are here to do his will, to be his body, to continue his work. Until you and all of us get that straight and understand that we are here to serve God, not accumulate the rewards of life, but bring honor to God and serve Him and His broken children with a generous spirit, until we understand our purpose, we are never going to be able to get to the place where we really do understand why we're here, where we really do understand the joy that comes from serving others. Until you and I fully understand why we're here, we cannot stop striving and growing a generous spirit. We have to always be seeking that. We we can never really be generous with our time, 
our money and our talent until we learn a generous heart by knowing who we are, what God has done for us, and what our role in the world is. But when we do understand why we're here, when we accept and embrace and take joy, both in our relationship with God and in our care in relationship with people who need our help, then we can begin to grow and to express generosity of spirit. When we have a clear sense of our purpose, we will be able to be generous in spirit. And then being generous with our time and our money will be no great concern. It will be a natural outpouring. And so, my brothers and sisters, do you know why you're here? Are you clear on what your purpose is? Are you in a position, loving God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving others as yourself, to allow God to grow you in generosity of spirit? Because everything else follows that. If you are willing to embrace what it means to be the body of Christ on earth, to worship God freely, to care for other people in need, and grow in generosity of spirit, as Jesus modeled for us, then anything is possible. Amen.